sun shines bright in those hills far away Where back in my childhood I'd wander and play And when I think about it now, it all seemed just like a dream Sitting on the front porch with my granny breaking beans And welcome back to Breaking Beans, the Appalachian Food and Farm Story, hosted by Community Farm Alliance. My name is Shelby Wheeler, and this hour we're going to be hearing from Kenya Abraham. Kenya and her husband Iyad Abraham, along with their four children, went from living the American retail dream with seven cell phone stores and two tea shops in Ohio to homesteading and then to moving to Lexington to try their hands at farming. Already business savvy and willing to put in the work, they started Slack Market Farm, Slack being an abbreviation for the names of their four children, and are now producing halal meat and raw milk. Kenny and I first met in November of last year and had an hour-long meeting that turned into a four-hour-long hangout. This time, we met in her milking room and chatted about everything from commercial dairies to racism and Islamophobia in rural Ohio. With roots in Appalachia and Palestine, this farming family is a treasure to us in Fayette County. And I really had to cut more of this interview than I'd like to to fit it into the hour-long radio show, so be looking for a more full-length conversation in coming weeks. My name is Kenya Abraham, and I'm the owner of Slack Market Farm. So uh, we started Slack Market Farm here in Lexington, Kentucky. We were homesteading for a couple years in Ohio on a little six-acre piece of land with a house and a barn and a bunch of hills and trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives and in farming. And when we moved here, we had already determined what path we wanted to take and, and serving and so that's who I am and what our farm name is. Can you describe your farm? What does it look like? What are you doing? Right now it looks a little bit like a mess <laughs> but <laughs> the perfect world my farm we have uh, dairy cattle that we produce raw milk for human consumption and so we've got a few dairy cows not a whole lot. I think I've got six girls right now and then a a heifer calf that's coming up behind them. We milk them daily. We also have goats. Then we have sheep that we raise for meat production and we have chickens for meat and egg production. We have ducks for egg production and we have a couple dogs (laughs) to protect all of those animals and two donkeys as well for guard. We also decided this past year that we're going to grow food. We've been living here for almost, well, it's been over three years now, almost four, and we've not done any production for vegetables. And so this year, in the beginning of the winter, in January, we decided we needed to uh, grow food. Through the winter, we realized, like, we're constantly buying. We're always buying from the grocery or, you know, we don't have anything canned or anything stored up. And so... We decided we definitely, we've always had a garden, but sometimes the sheep get in there and eat everything. We want to make a production on our farm. However, we're not vegetable farmers. I'm not real experienced or versed in that. And so we decided that we would have farmers come here, live in our guest house, and allow them to start a production in our front pasture, which is about three quarters of an acre, to grow vegetables. And, And they have to come with a business plan live in that house, pay rent, and it's like an incubator, but they're paying their way. And also, they come with a business plan to make a production there in that front field. 
that we benefit from as well, you know, in a certain way, but also it gives us space to do teaching. What does a typical farm day look for you? So my, my typical day is I wake up early and get my husband off to work, and we're up now at 4 a.m. and sit for an hour by myself, at least until from 5 to 6 is like my quiet time. I try to make space for myself and trying to be a better, more connected to myself and, and giving myself time to think and not think about anything necessarily other than, you know, I don't know, meditation and, and not really a quiet time, just a quiet space. Then I get up and go out here to the farm store and um, have some coffee. I have coffee in my quiet time too. Coffee is a big part of my day. So I'll have some coffee and then I'll, you know, come out, start getting ready for milking. Our cows are usually up now uh, between seven and eight. We're trying to get them in and out for their milking time. And sometimes eight, sometimes nine, <laughs> it just depends. But by, by 10 o'clock we should be done milking. And then, um, you know, cleaning up behind that, it's a kind of a big undertaking. If you're going to produce raw milk, you have to be very safe. And so we have a lot of safety measures that we put in that. Um, we have a sanitation system that I created, a like a hazardous analysis critical control plan for our farm production. And so that has to be followed. And I train my daughters on that as well. So right now, like my daughter was milking the cow. Now she's on the cleaning end of it and learning to do that every day. I need this to be a place where if I have to walk away, it can be handled and I'm not here. And um, for a while there, I was finding myself going to speak at events and going to do things or, you know, like the retreat for CFA. I had to be gone every night. So I need to know that the ship is still sailing while I'm going. So that's, that's the, the morning shift. And then we usually do some homeschool time. Uh, I homeschool my kids, and so we're constantly battling that, which everybody knows what that's like now. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, with this COVID. So I'm used to my kids being home. And school for us, though, is, is being out here on these on, on the grass and being in situations where we're, you know, trimming hooks and looking at soil and, and, and doing things that we're learning from and counting from. And so it's a lot of fun for them. And then, I don't know, usually about 2 o'clock is when our herd share owners are allowed to come in. So our farm store hours are from 2 to six, and anybody that's a part of our herd share comes and picks up their milk every week, um, Monday through Saturday. And some, you know, we, we don't do Sunday hours, but sometimes it's necessary um, that somebody needs something on Sunday. And that's a situation where they don't bother me at all. They just kind of sneak in here and sneak out mm -hmm. with a text message. But we we kind of here really adhere to those hours. I love interacting with my herd share owners. I love being in the store with them. Um, having coffee like we're having right now and having conversation you know that that's that's a big thing is to have the connection that I have with my herd owners is amazing and it's it's a deep connection for all of us and but we don't always have the time to do it you know and people don't always have the time to sit and have a cup of coffee and neither do I to be honest and so there's a lot of work that get, has to get done in the afternoon my husband's home about three and so um, need to have dinner done which my son handles uh he's 14 years old so he's cooking and, and doing laundry and you know quite the man and helping me with that and so uh, we're, by by the time after the three o'clock comes it, it's really 
just maybe two things I can get done outside. Uh, fencing always needs worked out. The dog's shop collar wires always broke somewhere. You know, it's always something that we have to do. My daughters collect eggs about three o'clock. And so once we're done with those, the evening chores roll in and it's, you know, putting the chickens away and uh, making sure the dogs are fed and watered and everybody's in their position kind of hunkering down for the evening. Animals don't like to be moved in the evening, so we just kind of make sure everybody's where they're at before that sun starts to fall. Mm -hmm. And by eight o'clock, I'm usually in the bed and knocked out. I fall in the bed. You know, it's there's always chores, you know, mucking out the barn, getting, you know, when the cow's going in through the winter, winter's really rough. It's just hay and doing that kind of stuff. But the winter's also, it's rough, but it's it's also like kind of a, a break because there's not so many projects going on. So you, you do have like a harder load as far as like hay and, and cleaning, but there's also the break to relax and not have to do all that. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely necessary. It sounds yes. like your days are super busy. They are overwhelming <laughs> yeah. But it's also filling, like couldn't imagine doing anything else. And that's, it's nice, it's, it's nice for us because it's where we feel we fit in and it's, it's what fits for us. And I, I wouldn't want to go back to anything else. I've done a lot of things in my life. I've been a lot of things and I've done a lot of things. And this is, this is the sweet spot. We love where we're at and I do too. I love this community as well. Like we're in the right place physically where we're located. I, I love our location as well. And we've just fallen into a very nice spot. Mm-hmm. Her neighbors are great. I've got the best neighbors in the world. Seriously, I've got really good neighbors. And like we, the lady across the street, we utilize, she allows us to utilize her property for our animals. And so we have an additional 12 acres over there that you know I can have grazed. And a gentleman that just built the house next to us and we had wanted to purchase that land ourselves and it was heartbreaking because we couldn't afford it. <laughs> and very expensive here however I mean we couldn't ask for a better neighbor uh, he's just been absolutely wonderful and uh, his wife is vegan and which you know I joke with her and tell her my cows are vegan they're, they're beautiful and they're a beautiful family and they, they allow us to graze on their back pasture so that's another when I measured it on google map I think it was about seven acres so oh, wow. and that's something for our sheep to go to mm-hmm. it hasn't worked out very well for the goats they get out the fencing is old cattle fencing so but the sheep we we'd actually considered stopping sheep production uh, before COVID and so uh, when COVID hit and we were considering like our options for meat and thought maybe we ought to hold on to these ewes and they're yesterday's ewes they're you know they're not actually like young anymore but we we're keeping them and, and we put them back there on there and that property with the donkey and they're, they're going great. So yeah, it's just been really nice having good neighbors. Yeah. I feel like that's so important. It is. It is. My husband had like seven cell phone stores and I had uh, two tea shops at one time. And, you know, was, we were living this retail American dream kind of, you know, build your, build your stuff. And, uh, not that those seven cell phone stores were doing great. It was more stress than what it was worth. I was running us ragged. And 
and the tea shop was I loved it. it was, I loved being like in a cafe setting, it's just like we're having coffee now. Um, so that's why I'm kind of obsessed with sitting with my perchure owners, and because I, I love to serve people and I love to be in conversation. So that fit me really well, and I'll probably get back to that one day uh, when I get my big girl pants. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll and I'll get back to that, and I believe it'll be in Lexington. But we, we were just, like I said, just running around trying to live this dream. But we were also, I guess it is living a dream because you really are asleep when you, when you get caught up in that. It's, it really is that you're sleeping. Um, we hadn't, we were trying so hard to, to have this, this dream that really, like I said, you're, you're just sleeping because you're not really paying attention, or we weren't enough to to all the really things the things that really matter like our health and what we're eating and those things were important to us at one time Uh, we're muslim obviously so everybody worries about what's on their dinner table when you eat halal meat um because the industry the big industrial meat industry that it is they've, they've got a part of halal meat now and it's marketed in a certain way and every muslim household sits and says is this really halal you know, so those conversations had happened, and when I first married my husband, we talked about just having three acres of land out in the country a little bit, and you know, raising our own sheep. And so we lost that though, that that vision. We ended up in a house in the suburbs, you know, uh, with all the trimmings and stressed out, you know, dealing with running these businesses. And my husband was diabetic, and I didn't know that; he didn't know it. And he ended up in surgery, long story short, a major surgery, and almost lost his life. And so that was it. <laughs> it was like, um, whoa, you know, I was on maternity leave at the time. My daughter was just a week old, uh, Sabille. And so I was already home and had decided I was taking maternity leave because I never would take time for myself to run businesses. And so it was just a time kind of like this COVID thing, how we all feel now. That's how we felt then. It was like, God gave us this time, like slow down, like literally think about this. And we, we did. And it took him a long time to heal up. And over that, I don't know, three months period that we sat and nursed him back to health and help, you know, him. And he was already like, we're not doing this anymore. And we had a huge hospital bill, no insurance. Um, and we decided to leave all of that. And, that. and we knew that we were going to go into farming. I sat and wrote the nonprofit program at the beginning of that uh, time period. Because I was thinking, oh, I could still you know, run this business from home. Uh, and we didn't know really, I guess it wasn't farming that we were thinking. It was more just, let's just go live off grid. <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody wants that. Like, when you get enough enough's enough, you decide that you're not going to do this anymore, and you want to live off grid, or you know, I just want everybody wants this little fairy tale like homestead, and so we decided to go for that, and and it was disastrous. We we had no idea what we were doing. Um, neither one of us come from a we come from a farming background as far as generational, uh, you know, our, my people and his people, but. That it had skipped like maybe two generations. My mother didn't farm. My grandfather was a sharecropper. My husband's parents were definitely like his father would go to mountains and carve out rocks for uh, 
masonry work and like granite and stuff and he was not an educated man couldn't read or write but these people depended on him to tell the density of a rock and pull it out of a mountain and say this is what you use for that and you know just gifted in that way uh would put trees together two trees he'd mend them together and grow two different fruits you know he was amazing but they lived in a small you know little village but they didn't he my husband was around animals but they didn't actually have a farm where was the village my husband is palestinian so he his family is from palestine his parents because of the occupation left palestine and just before sometime before he was born they moved to jordan to escape the torment (laughs) that that was happening in palestine so Mm -hmm. that he was raised in jordan and so um he came here in 2002 i believe taught himself english and yeah but so we, we neither one of us really knew like and we were just watching videos while he was healing up. We were watching a whole lot of, you know, Joel Salton videos. I feel like I need to send Joel a check because, like, we learned a lot from just YouTubing and trying to figure out, like, how to... But then when we got there and got animals and we actually were dealing with, you know, butchering our own chickens and, and buying little equipment to do that, everything we had was on such a, you know, very small personal scale. But I liked it and I felt like this is like I thought everybody was going to like it I thought all of our friends and family around us was going to just come right on you know and start getting chicken from us and getting this from us but it it was very telling when when we figured out how much it cost to produce food and to use certified organic feed and to do you know what what you have to do to manage that um, nobody was willing to really pay for that. Everybody was like, oh, you know, they thought they could get eggs like they do from Kroger for $2 or not less. You know, and the same thing with our milk production. So it was, I, I was shocked at like how nobody wanted to get on with us. Like, yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> this is great. And some people were, but it's, it's very um upsetting I guess we were kind of felt like wow like maybe we shouldn't be right here in the place where we were in Ohio and I learned a lot about uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at marketing and I know that my product's not for everybody but I didn't know that then I, I wasn't uh, I was just trying to get this to everybody I thought everybody wanted it of course you do you know and I figured that out through uh, some training and taking a class that I, I've got a specific customer that wants what I have and so I needed to move to a place where um, people were of a like-minded nature and um, we looked at different places and I've, I've never to be honest with you I've never been happy living anywhere um, I've lived in Ohio most of my life but I've also lived in Indianapolis and I've had a lot of family in Georgia. So I've spent a lot of summers there in, in New Jersey and spent a lot of time in these places. But I've never been truly happy in, or settled anywhere I've lived, even in my hometown. Like I left my hometown when I was 16. Um, so I've, I've always had this urge, like I need, like I belong somewhere else, but not there, and um, couldn't find that. And my husband wanted to look at places because he at the time homesteading we realized we need more money (laughs) you can't make a living off of homesteading and so he had thought about opening up another cell phone store and we were 
looking at different places where we could work and homestead. He started coming here to work on a, a construction job with his cousin and driving back and forth, spending a couple nights here a week in Lexington. And he kept telling me, you know, Kentucky is really nice. And I just thought, you're, you're out of your mind. I wouldn't even hear it. I, I, I've never been to like any place in Kentucky other than exit 104 on Man of War, driving to Georgia, coming back. You know, I would always, we'd always stop there, get gas or eat or whatever be almost home so I, but I I just had never thought that I would ever find anything good in Kentucky I thought you know we lived in Hamilton Ohio at the time which I was having a lot of difficulty with racism there uh, being a, a covered Muslim woman living around a bunch of men who are really just racist basically and would say things to me when my husband wasn't with me and like finding myself driving because I am not a punk. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't grow up in this scarf and I find myself like set off, like somebody yelled towelhead out the window one time. I like turned my car down this road because I was going to go cut that guy off. And I grew up fighting and I was ready to show him what was up underneath that towel. So <laughs> I couldn't imagine living anywhere where I was going to face these, you know, racist redneck white men and i thought that kentucky was definitely going to be full of that um i just i, I was like are you nuts like you want me to move to kentucky no way <laughs> like I, I i just couldn't imagine that and i right away i put this hand up he he was still working and coming back and saying you know in texas was a long shot for me as well and at the time texas was really on the table we, we were about to sign a lease for a, a building there had a few houses in mind but it was san antonio texas which they have a diverse population and so i was okay with that but texas was really hard for me you know it's juneteenth today and let let me say this <laughs> as to that you know um happy juneteenth everyone but yeah. I, I, Texas was very, very hard for me because of the way I've, anybody I've ever met from Texas, not that I've met a lot, but I've met some people from there and they have this air about them. Texas people seem to have a very big chip on their shoulder about being from Texas. Um, Tennessee people, <laughs> I've noticed it. They're very proud. And, uh, good for you. I understand that. But um, And then there was, uh, I've always gotten a racist tone. And, and besides the fact, like, you know, it took them two years to stop slavery in texas and when you hear about juneteenth and this this, this wonderful um, comment made by the president saying that he made juneteenth famous that's just crazy but when you hear about juneteenth even on the news they always say slavery ended at this date but it took two years for for the state of texas to hear about it and they they say it like okay mail travels slow i understand that but that wasn't the case. It didn't take them two years to hear about it. It was that we had these oppressors in Texas who were hell-bent on the continuing a detrimental act against our people and were not willing to stop committing this atrocity to Africans. And so the U.S. government had to go to Texas and make them stop slavery. The, the military had to go to Texas to stop slavery. That's what happened. 
So Texas was a hard decision for me. But then Harry comes again, and he's saying, you know, what about Lexington? I really wish you, maybe we should just go there and look at it. And I, I felt, you know, there's, my husband is the lead of our house. I, I believe that spiritually that's the right way things are supposed to be. And I, I find myself sometimes getting in the way of that because I'm such a strong, driven woman. And I'm the lead in a different way as far as like holding the realm of, of things spiritually. And so I, I, I realized that I was causing um, an unbalance between something that he was wanting to do for us. And I, I thought, let me get out of the way and let this man lead. And, you know, and so I stepped back and I said, you know what? I'm going to let this man leave. <laughs> so I said, if you want to move to Kentucky, you know, let's look at it. Let's, let me put the, because I, I was bringing this force against what he was wanting to bring for us. And, I, and so I had to stop myself a little bit and step back. And I'm, it was like, when I did that, the doors opened and God showed me. And it was just amazing. When, when I came to Lexington, I'd never been in a place in America except for well, I've been in a place in Dearborn, Michigan, where I felt like I was actually overseas <laughs> in an Arabic country because there's you know so many Arabs. But collectively, like Minnesota was uh, Minneapolis. I felt there was a collective mix of diversity there, and and in San Antonio, I felt there was a diversity mix there. I did not know that there was this little melting pot here. I just I had no idea. And so when I came here and I experienced that, I mean, I went when stopped at Kroger for something, and it was like, oh my goodness, there's a hijabi woman, and, and there's a, a, an Asian man, and everybody, there's all these different people. And I'm not saying that there's not any areas in our town that are more segregated, but I was just very pleasantly surprised to, to find so many different walks of life in the community, and it felt like, wow okay, I might be able to live here. And so, as with everything else, um, got on Craigslist the next day, and there's this house. So that's basically where that Craigslist story comes in, which, so yeah, so we ended up finding the house on Craigslist, or I found it, and I thought it was a scam, honestly. There's a lot of scams on Craigslist. So I was like, oh, no way. Like, this sounds too good to be true guest house, three bedroom guest house, thousand square feet, and then the house being, you know, 5,000 square feet, and then there's a trailer on the property that can be rented. Um, so it was like, you know, barn building, ship building, all 12 acres, it just didn't seem right. No way. Like, and I emailed about it, and sure enough, here we are. Once we moved, and it took us, and I will never move again, shall walk, God willing. Because it took us so long. We, we, we're, we're not wealthy farmers. We didn't get generational land passed down to us or equipment handed to us or anything. And so everything we collect or get, and it's usually junk, <laughs> we make something out of nothing. But I wasn't leaving anything at that little farm homestead that we had put together. We brought everything. We brought the fencing that we put up. I, brought, I took it down and brought it here. It took us 14 days to just move everything from our barn to this farm. And literally up and down 75, going up to Hamilton, Ohio, it's like two hours and 15 minute drive. We'd, we'd go there early in the morning, we'd leave here at 7 a.m., pack up, 
two trailers, two truck beds and two trailers, drive back down here about 9, 10 o'clock at night, sometimes 12. We spent the night twice. It, it, it was it was an undertaking. I thought I would die. 14 days of that. We took one day off. Jeez. And I said, they will bury me under this farm. I'm not going anywhere. And Lexington is our home, so get used to it because I'm not going anywhere. Uh, that's we are not going anywhere. Our neighbors, like I said, are have just been fabulous, and that's, I've never felt like I should be anywhere else but here. And I, someone, my son actually challenged me on that when I said that one day, and we were wondering why like he, he asked me like why that is why do you like Kentucky so much because hmm. it's not just Lexington yeah. once I got here and I you know go to get hay or any place you go and you go in these hollers you know and you go down these roads and Kentucky is one of the most beautifully landscaped states that I've ever seen it's really pretty here mm-hmm. and then being that my dad is Appalachian and my dad is from southern Ohio, was raised down by Jackson and Chillicothe and down in the hills of Appalachian region of Ohio and he was an Appalachian man, he didn't raise us there, he left there, got up out of the hills but he was still very much an Appalachian man. Uh, we had coon dogs in our backyard, you know, my dad was a coon hunter and my dad was a fisherman and my dad like used to work in landscaping so we had beautiful he would love he's not with us physically but I wish my dad could see me physically or be here with me physically in this time mm-hmm. he's with me in a different way but my dad raised me to believe like you can do anything you want and I believe that you can do anything you want if it's important to you it's not important to you, you won't do it. And he always would say that to me, or, or you ain't going it because it ain't important to you. <laughs> but when I would drive, my husband and I go get hay or something, and I would look off down those hollers and down these ravines and, you know, a little wire going along the side of the road and nothing but straight drops of trees, you know. I, being a kid, going down in the hills with, with Daddy was, you know, we'd go visit our families that you know lived in areas where some of them still had an outhouse you know like way in the the way back you know in the hollers and so it was like I when we'd go places I would it was like nostalgia for me like to remember those times and it just it it does my heart well like I, I I was telling my son like it's just so much of what I experience here reminds me of that time of my childhood and those experiences with my dad. And so my son said, because um, he said, well, who is your dad? Or who was your dad? And I said, my dad was an Appalachian man. And I never really had put that together before, <laughs> I guess. You know, I never really thought about that. I mean, you know, they say you can take the girl out the hood, but you can't take the hood out the girl. <laughs> it's the same, you know, you can take that man out the hills, but you can't take the hills out of that man. And that was true for him, and um, I realized that that's, that's why I feel, I think, I believe, that's why I feel like I'm home, that I'm 
I meant to be here, and, and the spirit that my dad had was very much unbridled. And they say unbridled. Kentucky, my father was very much unbridled, and I carry that same spirit. And so that is why I, I just I love it here. I, I'm, this is home for us. Once I got here, and we started implementing the plan as far as like, you know, we're going to milk cows now. That was a whole nother thing. It was like, goats are easy. Um, milking any animal, you have to be committed to that. Goats are easy for a kid to milk. And so if you don't feel like milking, it's not hard for somebody to milk out a little bit of milk out of the goat, but to commit to cattle is that you are marrying your farm. And at the homestead, and, and like I said, we were still thinking like, oh, well, we're going to work off the property he definitely was and I figured I'll do something like my nonprofit business or something but um, making the farm plan for our raw milk production I initially of course just wanted to milk for my family and so goats was enough for that but to get a cow involved and to actually you you literally are marrying your farm you can't take vacations. You can, but it's got to be very calculated, you know, and especially more than one cow. And we started with one cow, and I didn't know anything about, like, raising cows. Um, was afraid. I'm afraid of large animals. Um, when I got this cow, I was scared of her. She was huge, and I didn't expect her to be that big. I was looking at her. She was Guernsey. She was very tall. And I thought, she looks smaller in the picture, you know, like how jerseys are. And she, she's a no-nonsense cow, and it, I, it wasn't going to be as easy for me as you know, just get the goat and milk and goat. So that that was a whole just taking on the cow um, was was some time in learning. Uh, I got her before she gave birth, so we had like three months to spend together, and I had to break her into you know coming into the parlor and getting used to that. And, Holter and all that, and she's you know young heifer, but it 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 was challenging, but it made she made me learn her well, and she made me respect her. And there's a lot to be said about uh, milking a cow, <laughs> and and actually being in a relationship with that animal. And you know, in, in other cultures, she's looked at as like a deity or a, a, in a high position, and I understand why because uh, they're, they're really, truly amazing animals. And so, um, the dairy cow. And it just, she just made me really, I mean, she's kicked me a lot. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> PTSD from that. She's kicked me a lot. Um, and like, like warning, not, not like knock you out, but I've seen her give a kick to a horse fly that I realized she could knock me out if she wanted to. You know, and so, and that fear factor but she's never, and would never, I don't think, um, now that I know better, like, they, they're they so gentle, and and when they do lift the leg, usually it's just, you know, hey, that's a little painful. And if you've ever nursed a baby, then you already know, like, what it feels like to be full of milk. And so, I don't know, it's just something about making the decision to, to, marry the cow, marry the farm with cattle. It was something that I knew I had to do. I didn't want to be this running around working woman. 
I wanted to be home with my family and, and with my cows. And so that was a, a huge commitment, still remains a huge commitment. Um, but then again, it's the best thing I've ever done that I would never take back. I can't imagine living my life without doing. Just getting, having cows brought here from, like I usually buy, I do buy cattle from people that are, you know, one owner, they've had this cow a while, or, you know, I have one dairy that we have bought from for our Guernseys, who are, they're very respectable people, and they run a wonderful dairy. Um, they're clean, the cows are clean, they like, you see them on pasture. I've been to some dairies when I first started that I was just, couldn't believe, you know, and the condition that you see cows in, um, it's one of the most heartbreaking things for me. Like we, we purchased from a guy who got some cows off of a dairy and brought them here. And they, they came here and they were almost literally, Nancy, they, they were so thin and they were so, and, and dairy cows aren't expected to live their life expectancy on a dairy, commercial dairy, especially the operations that are like in confinement. They, they are expected to live about three to four years, which is mind blowing. You know, my cows are, I've got one that's Dreamer's probably eight years old. And she looks, mashallah, God protect her from my jealous eye. She looks like a supermodel, she's beautiful. And you know, if, if a cow is kept in the right condition and treated the right way, she will continue to give. And seeing those cows like that, one of them nearly died here in my front yard. She ended up with pneumonia. We had them segregated from our from our cattle because we didn't know if they had disease. And sure enough, the other one had uh, Yanni's disease when they had her tested. So, you know, it was, it's heartbreaking the, the loss you, you see and experience. That's probably the hardest part of this is dealing with loss. Um, they came here and that's sad enough just that, you know, they came and they were in that condition and I was like, wow, like this is what you get from that. And you can't even offer them like a good life because they can't even like live with calves or you know feed our calves or anything. It's just so they're they're just bound for basically where he should have sold them as you know sale bar, which in itself is for me that was that then I had to do that, and that that was just an experience that I had to do last week. So that that was absolutely to me very sad and horrible. Um, now I know it's part of the part of the process. You people take their animals to sale barns. But I for my females, my cows, especially my girls, they I don't ever want to see that for them. Death is definitely a hard thing. And and with any animal, not just females, but but it's hard. It's babies. I mean you lose a lot. They're so with livestock you lose a lot. And I'm used to it and I don't cry every time. Um, and then death is hard and, and what we do is and what I didn't mention that we do is we have a service my husband does end of life care so we have a program that we've started for Kentucky farmers we don't have enough land to raise animals um, for a butcher store and we, we want to have our own butcher store and, and one day our own slaughterhouse and so um, we network with Kentucky farmers, producers who have the same uh, 
homopathic or certified organic um, or just you know people that know they are but don't have that certification like we, we do homopathic stuff for our cows that are all natural and you know no chemicals and all that so basically we aggregate the livestock of those farmers they raise the animal we agree on the price I pay them for a live animal and the hoof and my husband handles the end of life care for that animal and it goes into our butcher store that's how that's supposed to work um, however with COVID-19 we haven't fully <laughs> rolled into that which is fine but in doing that we deal with death and so when I say death is hard it's hard when you lose an animal like I lost a you who was prolapsed and I tried to fix that myself and um, she ended up dying in childbirth a few or lambing in lambing a few maybe a month or two later that was hard and so um but we also have we bear the burden of, of handling end of life care so that that's another aspect of death that we deal with specifically uh, we take on this being the you know not the the end of life care specialist which some people are like oh my god i can't imagine like people don't that's the part people don't want to see they don't want that uh transparency in, in their consumption like they don't want to know and we bear the burden to do that for people mm -hmm. and so um that that's something that it's not difficult it's a it's a whole nother look at at death and it's it's, it's more of a positive thing it's, it's actually one of the things i really enjoy so death has like two sides in what we do in our operation uh one is like very sad for me and the other one is like very uplifting for me and so um as far as like what my pros and cons are and what we do i, I think that's probably the most difficult and also yet yeah, one of the most rewarding yeah it's halal slaughtering or just just you know the other end of that it's just losing animals because of you know somebody the goat's head was in the fence and we didn't see it in time and it was fixing it that's awful that is awful how can you describe because i don't think a lot of people know what a halal slaughter looks like or what that means mm -hmm. do you feel comfortable describing kind of what that process looks like sure um and I, I've talked about this before in interviews. So it's as in our faith, and, and anybody that follows an Abrahamic faith, so if you're a Christian, Muslim, or, or a Jew, it's written in our books as to how our animals are to be handled, animals that are to be handled for your consumption. And so, specifically, like what you are to eat and have, it's to be. Killed. And so, as Muslims, halal is prescribed for us in the Quran. Another thing, halal is prescribed for us, I'm sorry, Allah has, God has prescribed for us raw milk in the Quran. So, that's another thing that's like written. Um, but halal means what the word halal means is permissible. And when you translate it from the Arabic, it means permissible. So, you're you need to receive permission to take the life of an animal and it it has to be done a certain way so you cannot just kill animals because you like to hunt and you know 
they're out there and let's just go kill some animals you know and it, it's got to be I mean hunting is permitted as well in the Quran but there's a certain time which is a certain month everything mentioned goes basically by, by months like Ramadan there's fasting there's a time for fasting it's during the month of Ramadan so there's a month for hunting and I don't know what that is about <laughs> my husband could tell you <laughs> but there's a month for hunting when we're supposed to hunt only that month so um, to take the life of, of an animal is, is a very serious offense it's it's what's if it's done without permission that's considered what's considered to be called haram which haram means an offense against God and so um, God mentions specifically like ways we're not to kill our animals for consumption. A lot of those methods are what we use in our USDA facilities to kill our animals for our consumption. So, you know, blunt force to the head, um, even the electric shock, that's, that's an issue. So things that we're not supposed to do for, he doesn't say why, but obviously we are living in a time where we're consuming meat that is being killed in that way on, on like, uh, on, on a scale that, and I'm a meat producer, but it's on a scale we eat way too much meat. Um, because it's so easily accessible, we're not paying the real fee for what it, what it really costs to consume that, that much meat. And I, I got a feeling with what's going on, we're about to all experience that and slow down our consumption. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a time to come that, and obviously it's here, that we are dealing with the availability of halal meat, meat that's been slaughtered in this method that is industrial as well and it's not really being done properly. So you have to, what has to happen is the animal has to be given rights. And there's a video on my realmilklexington.com website. I've got a lot of websites. <laughs> we'll link them all. <laughs> and I think there's also the, the same video I believe is on the healthy butcher shop my son made it and it's pretty simple it's a lego video my son made when he was like eight years old and the lego movie had came out and so he was inspired by that and he wanted to do something to show people um halal slaughtering on a, on a level of using legos and still movement so we did a video he did it. he did a great job and so um we watched that video and it's on our, our YouTube page as well, the Lego Halal Slaughter video. But basically, they have to. These animals are given rights. They need to be given their rights, and so they they need to go in one at a time into the area for slaughter. They're not allowed to see each other being killed, so they have to be alone. They're not allowed to see any blood. So if there's blood left over between your slaughtering, you're going to need to clean that out and take care of that. They can't come into a room that's blood's everywhere. They're not allowed to see the knife that you're going to cut them with. Um, and then the knife has to, there's rules to the knife. It has to be extremely sharp. Um, extremely sharp. And, and so you have to give them a drink of water. You've got to, basically you need to have them in a calm state. Mm -hmm. They need to be comfortable. And in a mode to surrender you can't allow them to they can't be all crazy and, and you know upset we, we've done a slaughter once that when we were preparing for it 
uh, a gentleman came and wanted to do the last slaughter in, on our farm in Ohio. And my husband said, I can do it for you. No, 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 I'll do it myself. So, you know, he's Muslim, let him do it. And any Muslim person is allowed to do this. Now, with the Jewish faith, in their book, it's written that they have to have a rabbi come and do the procedure, the actual cut, and say a prayer. As Muslims, God said, we're, we're all in the position to do this. As believers, it has to be a believer to perform mm-hmm. this. And so the animal will feel the heart of that slaughter. When, when you ask for permission and you call God's name upon it, you have to say Bismillah, and you should read a few verses from the Quran that tells this animal that he is going to be a part of something better that Allah has called him. And if you watch a halal slaughter done properly, if you don't believe in God or a creator, you very well will probably convert <laughs> to believing something because it's it's beautiful um, the way that the animal surrenders and will lay still like the lamb. And Christians can relate to that because they believe that Jesus was the lamb. And so just just seeing that happen, it's, it's truly amazing. But basically, once you say those words on that animal, you need to do a swift cut to the jugular vein in the neck, which is proven scientifically that is near painless. Um, the blood then is not going to the brain. However, the nerves behind that vein are still connecting the brain to the rest of the body. And so the nervous system you can't just cut the head off. That's, that's not how you do it. So um, the nerves being still attached the brain obviously is going to communicate to the rest of the body and say i don't have enough blood send up some blood and every bit of that animal and you'll see when you're watching um and some people that's the part that's the hardest part but if you're really paying attention you will see that every nerve in the body responds to that call Mm. and so the blood rushes out um and every twitch it, it that animal will twitch in every way but at the end, where it really gets to be like, it's it's just absolutely beautiful, is that after they're doing this and, and blood is rushing, all of a sudden, right, right at the end, they begin to run. Their legs will start to gallop like they're in a running motion. And you you see that the soul is leaving. It's, it's just like they're running for that. They're going to that next pasture. And so that that's, that's, I don't know, you just have to be there, <laughs> I guess, to, to see that. But it, it's really, as, as hard as it is, it's beautiful and the same. And um, makes you really step back and say, like, you'll have a reverence for, for what's on your dinner table, like what you're about to consume. Um, it, it's, it's so much easier just not to know and so continue on the way we've been um, and not have any connection with that because it's just easy not to have to look. But people need to start looking. And we, we need, that's something that I think we, if we, when we, I can't say if we, when we have our own slaughter facility. Thank you for sharing so much with me. Thank you. So, so that's our farm, like where we started. And we've, We've been wanting to do a butcher operation and a slaughterhouse, and I have a mobile unit out front. It's an RV that we're 
turning into our butcher meat truck and it's going to be used for delivering milk and meat all over town it's not actually fully converted i've got to get freezers and different things that get to work that out but um we were gearing up for our agritourism on the farm we offered all kinds of classes, cheese class, and uh, milk maiden Mondays, so you can come milk a cow with us, and um, farm camp, and all this stuff that was supposed to happen and really kick off this year for the, the agritourism side of, of our operation. And things just, when we planned the crowdfund campaign to start fundraising money to do like that shed building into a classroom kitchen parlor space our whole plan got like turned upside down it was it was kind of like everything just stopped and not kind of it has been that everything has just stopped which is fine but it also has realized i don't know i just feel like a huge reset that has happened this break that we've been given has been very beautiful but it's also, I know now that what I was thinking was going to be normal and what I was thinking, like as far as our farm plan and, and, and where we serve, um, right now it's all kind of still being put into place and I'm, I'm searching now as to the direction of that service and what we really want to provide here, especially with where people are at in the condition of our people in this country. And so we're trying to find, I'm always looking for the balance, and now it's finding the balance in fulfilling the need that is coming with, with all this change that's coming. And so I can't say that all the things we have always been about are gonna be the same now in the direction that we need to, to walk in to fulfill the service that we need to do, we, we're now trying to lay the groundwork for. Things have definitely changed. And for the better, but one thing's stayed the same is that we're still going to be here and we're still going to be, you know, with our herd share operation. We're still... I, for a long time, I've just been wanting to get back to milk. I guess I was under this impression that we were going to just move on by this, like we've been moving on by everything we do. And um, so it, it was like, oh, no, you know, we're really not going to do any of this. And letting go of that, that hustle and bustle, that was part of my fight to not let this go. Like, we're addicted to, on some levels, being so busy and we've been trained to to think in certain ways and do things a certain way and all of this that's coming now people we, we really need to like look at what's in front of us and what's coming for all of us because it's clear to me that we are moving into a different space and we have to think differently on how we do things and i mean on a spiritual level and physical and everything but it's clear that we are moving into a new space and we have to take the lead on that. And my role, I feel, in that is, is leadership and being able to provide whatever we can to be your soft place to fall in all of that. And so, because this is life, 
this is all of our lives. And so that's what we're busy doing right now is uh, finding or, or maintaining, listening. God gave us two ears, listening to what, what, what path and direction we need to be serving. Thanks so much, Kenya. You can find her information and figure out more how to support her work at www.realmilklexington.com. You can also find Slack Market, spelled S-L-A-K, on Facebook. There's several other links, including a interview that Kenya did with Spectrum News, along with the folks of Black Soil, that'll be linked in the show notes at CFA kyblog.org. You can also find the link for the video of the Lego Halal Slaughter that Kenya's son made there. I wanted to take a quick moment to mention CFA's actions to stand with black farmers and families. This was released June 16th of this year and is posted on our website at cfaky.org. There's some cool pieces of information that I wanted to make sure to share. Part of CFA's acting on our commitment to equity right now is launching and administering the Kentucky Black Farmer Fund. More details about how to apply and contribute to the fund will be released in coming days. We'll also be purchasing $2,000 of food from black farmers to be donated to the Feed the West efforts in Louisville. If you're a farmer that wants to donate fresh food, you can find out more information on our website. We'd also like to challenge other agricultural organizations and every nonprofit to join us in supporting black farmers and neighbors by making tangible commitments to do this work. Thank you all so much for joining us this hour. As always, if you have a story that you'd like to share, you can email me at shelby, spelled S-H-E-L-B-Y, at cfaky.org. Talk to y'all soon. Thank you.